Good morning. Welcome to RHC. It's great to be with you. Uh, we are continuing our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. Just a, a brief recap. The churches that Paul had planted throughout the province called Galatia were under attack by false teachers known as the Judaizers or Judaizers is what I call them. I think it's Judaizers. But I just call them Judaizers because it's easier. It's not a word we use today. So They were spreading a false gospel that says that people are saved by a combination of believing in Christ and then doing all that they can uh, in their own efforts. So it was a combination of faith plus works. That's what they were teaching rather than proclaiming grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And one of the primary objectives these Judaizers were, uh, one of their primary objectives was to basically discredit Paul as an apostle, uh, to undermine and destroy his authority. The guy who actually planted this church and wrote this letter, these Judaizers knew that if they wanted to replace Paul's teaching, the true gospel, uh, with their man-centered sort of works-based version, they would need to first destroy his credibility in the eyes of the church members that were in these churches in Galatia. And to accomplish that end, they spread quite a few lies about Paul. They ultimately claimed that he was not a legitimate apostle. They said that he was really more of a people-pleaser who deliberately set aside the Mosaic or Jewish ceremonies and standards and practices to make the gospel more palatable and appeasing or appealing to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. So he was kind of this guy that, he, you know, they said he was a false apostle who came around and softened up the gospel message to try to get more converts. Maybe kind of like some of the pastors that are around today, which is exactly what they do. Now, their strategy of undermining Paul and talking smack about him and and, and, and saying he, was just a, just, he wasn't a real apostle, he taught a false gospel, their strategy actually worked because the Judaizers had caused quite a few members in the Galatian churches to doubt and question Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. In the previous section, which was chapter 1, verses 10 through 24, that's what we looked at last Sunday, Paul defended himself with seven autobiographical statements that expose the Judaizers' lies and deception and totally affirm that he is a true apostle. In the next section, Paul continues his defense with five more autobiographical statements. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians 2. We will be focusing on verses 1 through 14. I have entitled this message, very similar to last week's, Paul's Autobiography, part two, no frills, very simple. We can begin with Paul's eighth autobiographical statement, number eight. This is the next thing that Paul says. And remember, these little bullet points are just like the entire section that I'm going to read, the verses that I'm going to read, it's just condensed into one meaningful statement that kind of represents the totality of these verses. The next thing that he says, essentially, is, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to describe the gospel we preach. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Paul says this next. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. 
And he says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, in order to make sure I was not running or had run or had not run in vain. This is the very next thing he says. And I like how Paul begins by telling the Galatian churches, these Galatian Christians, that, that he and Barnabas went up again to Jerusalem 14 years later. 14 years. Obviously, uh, what comes to our minds is the first time he went to Jerusalem, 14 years earlier. A lot, of, a lot of space between these visits, according to what Paul is saying here, or maybe not. Now, some scholars call this 14-year period, they call it Paul's lost years. Why? Because they say there's no record of what Paul was doing actually during that time. The scripture doesn't reveal what Paul was doing during that time. The historical accounts and records and Josephus, these people, they don't talk about what Paul was doing during this time. That's what they allege. So they suggest that since Paul was basically inactive in ministry, they suggest that he had been probably reflecting on the Old Testament in the wilderness like maybe the prophet Elijah. Or perhaps during these so-called lost years, he was just studying the word to become an official minister in the church. This is what they say and what they propose. The problem is this view, which is popular, by the way, is totally debunked by Scripture itself. It's, it's debunked by Galatians 1.21 and by the book of Acts in chapter 9, verse 30, and then again in Galatians 2.11. All these passages clearly show that Paul was in Syria and Cilicia and Antioch during that 14 years. These, uh, basically, you have to ask the question, so if, if, if he wasn't, these years aren't lost and he wasn't inactive and just sitting like some kind of a weird monk in the desert contemplating the word in ministry, what was he actually doing in those regions. And those aren't necessarily cities, except Antioch is, but the rest are regions. These are large provinces and regions that Paul was in. What was he doing during the 14 years? Was he contemplating the word, thinking about entering the ministry? Of course not. He was preaching the gospel and planting churches. The Jerusalem letter in Acts 15, 23 to 29, you know, the the letter that the Jerusalem Ecumenical Council drew up for Gentiles, that letter in Acts 15, 23 to 29, it is addressed to which churches? The churches in Antioch, the churches in Syria, the churches in Cilicia. There were churches in those regions. How did those churches get there? Paul planted those churches. And this was before he was officially commissioned and sent out by the church at Antioch. Paul had to plant the church of Antioch before it could send him out. Makes sense, right? How do you get sent out by a church that doesn't exist? These churches were all planted during that 14-year period, well before he was commissioned and sent out as a missionary. And you can read about him being commissioned and sent out in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now, linguistically, the word again there in verse 1, it doesn't necessarily refer to Paul's very next visit. It could just as easily mean once again, like we went to Jerusalem once again without any respect to how many visits he had made in between. 
In fact, Scripture shows that Paul had gone to Jerusalem during the 14-year period. So this visit that we're looking at couldn't have been his very next one. There's one in between. We read about that in Acts 11, 27 to 30. What happened there? Paul and Barnabas were sent by the church at Antioch. That was kind of his home base. They were sent from that church to go deliver famine relief to the Jerusalem Christians and churches, or the churches in Judea. So Paul was not inactive during that time. He was planting churches and preaching the gospel. He planted churches in these regions that he didn't even visit during his first missionary journey. After he was commissioned and sent out, he didn't go to Antioch. He didn't go to Syria, uh, the Syrian uh, area. He didn't go to Cilicia. He went to other places. He went to Galatia. That's when he planted the churches in Galatia. So he was active. These years aren't lost to the Scripture talks about them. Now, I want you to notice something here in verse 1 where he says, we went up to Jerusalem. Do you notice the detail? Up to it. Was it a skyscraper? No, it's a, it's a city. When a person visited or even visits today Jerusalem, they are literally going up. Why? Because Jerusalem is perched on a hilltop. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. In fact, 30 miles away is the lowest place on earth. So you have this high place, geographically you have this high place, Jerusalem, it's way up high, and then you've got the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. In fact, in John 5, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Jesus did what? He went up to Jerusalem. Comparatively speaking, the city that Paul traveled from here, Syrian Antioch, it's only 220 feet above sea level. That's a difference of, what, almost 2,300 feet. So when you go to Jerusalem, you're going up because it's up on top of a hill. The word up, up also has a, not just a geographical connotation, but a spiritual connotation. In 1000 B.C., 1,000 years before Jesus is born, King David defeats the Jebusites and he captures the city of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10. And he makes... Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish kingdom. And later his son Solomon built the first temple there in Jerusalem and, and made Jerusalem and that temple the center for Judaism, for Jewish religion. Jerusalem became known as Mount Zion. How many of you have heard that phrase, Mount Zion? Mount Zion means the place where Yahweh, the God of Israel, dwells. Isaiah 8, 18 and Psalm 74, 2, it, it, Mount Zion refers to the place where God is king. Isaiah 24, 23, that's Jerusalem. When a person went to Jerusalem, they ascended, in a sense, they ascended the hill of the Lord. Psalm 24, verse 3, what Bruce read earlier. Today, they call Jerusalem, the holy city, and there's a whole bunch of people fighting over it. You've got Muslims fighting over it. You've got Christians fighting over it. You've got Jews fighting over it. It's a, it's a bloody mess over there. But it, is, it has a geographical, it's at a geographical high point, and it's at a spiritual high point. When he says he's going up to it, he, he, in, in, in his mind, when, when Paul goes up to Jerusalem, he's going up to the Mount of God. That's what he's saying. That's what he's thinking. And notice also how it says that Paul took Titus with him, a guy named Titus. 
This is significant, but we'll wait till we get to verse 3 to see why. In verse 2, Paul describes why he, Barnabas, and Titus went up to Jerusalem. He says it was because he had received a revelation, and he wanted to go to Jerusalem and and run that revelation, which is really just the gospel. He wanted to present it, you know, his message, his gospel message to Gentiles. That's what he received as a revelation from Jesus Christ. He wanted to go to Jerusalem and make sure that, that everyone is on the same page with the gospel. This is the gospel I preach, and, 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 and I know the gospel you preach. Are we all on the same page? This is why he's going, in a sense. He wanted to make sure that that he was aligned with Peter and the others. Why? Because some men came down from Judea, that's the region of Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, and this is what these men were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, verse 1. So, so Paul is preaching his gospel message to non-Jews, there's men who come into his area and are basically telling Paul, you're not preaching the right gospel because you're not only supposed to tell these people, especially the men, you got to believe in Jesus, but you need to get circumcised as well. You need to become like a Jew. So Paul is going down to Jerusalem to, to find out what's going on. And not only that, but these men who were going around teaching this false gospel said they were sent by James. An apostle. So he's, he's there to basically investigate, you know, hey, I need to confirm the gospel I preach. Not that he was doubting it, but I need to make sure that we're all on the same page because I've got guys up in Antioch preaching a false gospel who say they've been sent by the apostles. And they're also saying I'm not an apostle. So this is why he's down here. I do not believe that Paul was concerned about the gospel he preached. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to say, hey, am I preaching the right gospel? If, if he were to say that, he would be sinning by doubting the revelation the Lord Jesus gave him. He has no doubts about the gospel he preaches. He was concerned about the false gospel of the Judaizers and their alleged association with James, an apostle, and the pastor of the Jerusalem church. In fact, the entire church at Antioch was concerned about the matter because it appointed a commission to investigate the whole matter. It sent Paul and Barnabas and Titus and others to go up to Jerusalem, to the apostles, to the elders, and to, and to, to deal with this question, is, is circumcision required for salvation. I think everyone knew it wasn't, but they still said, hey, you need to go down there. These guys are preaching something else, and they are, they're passionate about what they're saying, and they're forceful. Go down there and make sure that we're okay. That's what's playing out here. And Paul tells the Galatians that when they arrived in Jerusalem, he and his, his companions, his team, they presented the gospel, they proclaimed to Gentiles privately before those who seemed influential. In other words, Paul and his team met with the elders and the apostles first in a private meeting to discuss and describe the gospel they preached to Gentiles. I mean, that makes sense, right? They go down and they're welcomed by the whole church because the church is familiar with what they're doing up north in the Gentile regions. But he doesn't just bust out and start talking about everything that's going on or what's happening with the whole church. 
They call a meeting with the elders of that church and the elders in the church and, and with the apostles. And I mean, that makes total sense, right? You go to the leadership first. And that's exactly what they did. And they also declared all that God had done with them, Acts 15, verse 4. So they, they explained their gospel and said, look at the power of God in these areas. When we preach the gospel, these Gentiles are coming to faith. And it's amazing. I'm talking about the revival that they witnessed in all this. They're unpacking it all for these elders and apostles. Now let's move to his ninth autobiographical statement. Number nine, this is, this is great. Titus, who was with them, was not told to get circumcised. And we see this in verse 3. And this, this is incredibly significant. Because remember, the false gospel the Judaizers were preaching is what? The only way you can be saved is that you need to believe in Jesus and you got to be circumcised and you need to follow the Mosaic law. So Paul deliberately takes this uncircumcised Gentile with him. I love Paul. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. Listen to what he says in verse 3. But even Titus, right? Titus is a Greek name. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. <laughs> Titus was a Greek, and, and what, is, what is he saying here? That Greeks, they didn't practice circumcision. That's a Jewish thing. Back in that day, I think today Americans have their kids circumcised just because. It's like an American thing. Or maybe it's more clean. I have no idea why they do it. It seems torturous to me. But they didn't prep. I know, you're like... This is awkward. They didn't practice this back then. Greeks did not get circumcised. It wasn't part of their religion. They didn't follow the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the commandments and these things. Titus didn't do any of that. He was Greek. He was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile, a non-Jew. And Paul takes him to Jerusalem to prove a point to the Galatians. He knew, Paul knew that the elders and apostles would not tell Titus to get circumcised because the gospel does not require it. And no one in leadership had ever given such an order. When Jesus came preaching the gospel, he didn't say, repent and believe the gospel and get circumcised if you're a guy, then you can inherit the kingdom. He never said anything like that. I don't know about you, but if I was in the audience, I would have went, I was good until you said circumcision. I'm Greek, I ain't doing that. I'm 42 years old. I ain't suffering like that for two weeks. Jesus never preached circumcision as part of his gospel message. The apostles never preached circumcision as part of their gospel message. It had nothing to do with it. And Paul deliberately takes an uncircumcised Greek there with him and presents him before the Jerusalem council. And he's really doing it here to prove a point to the, to the Galatians that he's writing to later on, he's, he's retelling what he did to prove to the Galatians that these guys are lying to you. Circumcision isn't part of it because I took Titus, and if it had been required, believe me, the apostles and the elders would have said, why are you bringing this uncircumcised Gentile into our assembly? Take him out to the local rabbi. Fred's on duty right now from 9 in the morning till noon. Take him over there, get him snipped, bring him back. I know he'll be in a wheelchair. <laughs> Never happened. Paul knew this wouldn't happen. He knew that the elders and the apostles would not say, you need to take this guy. We, we love the fact that he loves Jesus, but he's got to be circumcised. He knew that would never happen. 
Well, Paul went to Jerusalem the first time, 14 years or so earlier, nobody there told him to make sure that Gentile converts are circumcised. Well, he spent 15 days with Peter. You would think that with such a crucial gospel issue that Peter would have brought that up over the course of 15 days. In fact, if it was part of it, he would have brought it up every day for 15 days. Right? If you're saying that people have to be circumcised to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, that's something you're going to talk about a lot because you don't want people to miss that. Peter never says a word about that for 15 days. And he also interacted with James, the same James that we're talking about here at that time, and, and it was never mentioned by James. When he went to Jerusalem to deliver that famine relief we talked about, nobody told him that Gentile converts needed to be circumcised. Oh, by the way, thanks for bringing us 10 grand so we can get food for all these widows and orphans and everything. And by the way, make sure that Greeks get circumcised when they're converted. Never happened. When Paul preached the gospel and planted churches in Antioch and in Syria and in Cilicia, when he was out there doing all that ministry over the course of 14 years, nobody came to him and said, make sure that these Gentile converts are circumcised. In fact, somebody did come and say that to him, but it wasn't any real church official. It was the Judaizers, false brothers. Up to this point in the narrative, Paul has been in ministry for about 17 years, and never did anyone intervene. No one from Jerusalem, none of the apostles, none of the elders, no one in any real actual position in the church, never did anyone come and say, Paul, you better add circumcision to the gospel you preach, or Gentiles cannot be saved. Never happened. Why didn't it happen? Because it's not required. So he knows that when he takes Titus down there, an uncircumcised Gentile, nobody's going to say, hey, get him snipped. He was confident that the elders and apostles would accept Titus without hesitation and say nothing about circumcision. Now think about the implications here. If the Judaizers who said you had to be circumcised to be saved... If they were doctrinally correct or theologically correct, if they were supported by the apostles as they claimed to be, if they had been sent by James as they claimed to be, the elders and apostles would have told Titus to get circumcised when he appeared before the council, wouldn't they have? Totally, in a heartbeat. But what happened? Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek Paul, Paul is, is retelling this and giving these autobiographical statements to show that circumcision was never required in Christianity. I, I took Titus. He didn't have to get snipped. Quit listening to the Judaizers. When the elders and apostles accepted Titus just as he was, uncircumcised, the gospel that Paul had been preaching to Gentiles, it was vindicated. And the Judaizers were exposed as false teachers. They didn't require that of Titus. Those guys are preaching something other than the true gospel. That's what was communicated through these actions. Now we can move to his 10th autobiographical statement. He says this, We were rebuffed by false brothers, but we stood our ground. Verses 4 and 5. Remember, he's still recounting his time down in Jerusalem. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Listen to what he says. 
to them, to those guys, to the Judaizers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is pointing out two bad encounters he had with the Judaizers. Now, he had a lot more bad encounters with them, but here he's just retelling two instances. The first one took place in Antioch when these bozos tried to infiltrate that church. In Acts 15, 2a, it says, when they came in, when the Judaizers tried to come into the Antioch church and, and preach their false gospel, it says this, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. As soon as they came in preaching their false gospel, Paul and Barnabas were like rabid badgers. Hey, what are you talking about? You're adding circumcision to the gospel. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. There's no works. I mean, they stood up to these guys. And, and don't think for a moment that these guys were given pulpit time in Antioch. They weren't. They were just going around whispering to the saints and telling the brothers and sisters these things. And these guys stood up to them. That's his first bad encounter with them. The second one took place during Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Here. After he and his team met with the elders and apostles, right? They initially went in and talked to those who were influential, or at least seemed it. And that would be the elders and apostles. After that, they come out of that setting, and bam, they're confronted by Judaizers. That's actually recorded here in verses 4 and 5 in our Galatians text and back in Acts 15, 5, which says this, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Paul is down there describing his gospel, retelling what happened. He's down in Jerusalem. He's down there because the Judaizers were causing trouble up in his territory. And as soon as he gets done unpacking some wonderful things that God has done, his true gospel, bam, he's hit by these brothers that belong to the Pharisee group. What are they? Judaizers. In Galatians 2.4, Paul says these these. False brothers, these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they were what? Secretly brought in to what? Spy out the freedom we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. The word picture here is really pretty amazing. It is of enemies entering a camp by stealth with the main objective of sabotage. Coming in in the middle of the night to cause sabotage, undetected. That's what these false brothers, these Judaizers were doing. The phrase secretly brought in means that these false brothers, they weren't secretly brought in by some faithful brother in Christ. They used deception to gain entry and access into the churches. They posed as true believers and said all the things that Christians say and acted like real Christians, and, oh, that's my brother Bill over there. You know what I mean? I'm glad Bill's not here because he'd think I'm talking about him. But that's what they did was they pretended. They were like wolves in sheep's clothing. And they used deception and, and, and Christian lingo and doctrinal terms and theological statements and Christ alone and stuff like that to get acceptance by all the other brothers and sisters in the Lord, the true ones. That's how they entered and you know, when church folks do not know their Bibles and don't understand and have never really looked at church history, 
aren't they more easily deceived and led astray by false brothers like these guys? I mean, are, they not, are there not false brothers and sisters in the church today that are coming in always and through deception and acting like they're the real deal and then over time you realize they're not the real deal because you know your Bible? Well, imagine what happens when you don't know your Bible. You get deceived. This happens all the time. You know, Christians who are ignorant of the word, they are more easily tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, right? This is what Ephesians 4.14 says. You've got to have a, 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 a really biblically centered, strong, doctrinally church to be able to withstand this kind of stuff. If you're weak and wimpy and don't know the word, they're going to come in pretty easily and they're going to take over. But if you know the word, you can be like Paul and Barnabas back in Antioch and said, hey, hold on a second, pal. You guys don't belong here. Oh, that's fine. We'll just go to the next church. Notice how Paul says they came to spy out our freedom in Christ. Well, what was he talking about here? What is this freedom that we have? Well, he was obviously pointing to our freedom from the law's demands and the penalty we should receive because of our disobedience to God's commandments. That's what he's talking about. Look, when Christ died on the cross, he what? He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. Those who repent and and trust in Christ for salvation, those who just believe in Him, they're not trying to work it, they're not trying to earn it, they're not saying, hey, I'm going to go out and get circumcised, I'm going to go get baptized, I'm going to do everything I can in my power to get myself saved. Those who are just simply repenting of their unbelief and putting their trust in Christ, they alone are no longer under the law or under its penalty. They are under grace, Romans 6, 14. And the law... The Mosaic law, the commandments of God, become a kind of schoolmaster or set of guidelines that help Christians live for God and bring Him glory. But to unbelievers, the law is a bludgeon. It reveals their disobedience, it reveals their sin, and it points them to Christ, their only remedy. This is why the law is broke down even in the, in the simplest of sins. Like, have you ever lied? Well, who hasn't told a lie? Guess what? Liars go to hell. Well, gosh, lying's a, I guess that's a serious sin, but it's not as bad as murdering somebody. Well, that one's in the Ten Commandments too. Thou shall not kill. You know, taking the Lord's name in vain, that puts people in hell. And to, to unbelievers, it, it, it shows them their sin. It shows them what they've done against God, and it beckons them to come to Christ, who is the source of saving grace. To believers, the law is a helper because I can look at the commandments and say, okay, these are the things I need to avoid. These are the things I need to do because that's how I should live for Christ, right? It's a good thing. The law serves me. The Spirit works in me to obey that. But to unbelievers, it is a hammer. Now, since Christians are under grace, they do not need to be concerned with Israel's dietary restrictions. I never eat lobster because the ancient Jews didn't. Boy, did they miss out. 
We don't have to worry about the dietary restrictions. We don't have to worry about the clothing requirements. And I'm not saying, hey, I went and got a halter top because I'm an attractive young female and I love Jesus. That's dumb. The Bible preaches modesty. But I'm saying, you know, I've had people come to me and say, hey, it talks about sewing this on, this kind of garment and that. Do I need to be concerned about that? And I'm like, the next week they come in looking like they're wearing Joseph's color coat of many colors. It's like... What did you do to yourself? Did you spend all week sewing that together? That's pretty amazing, but guess what? It's unnecessary. <laughs> you, you don't have to be worried about the diet. You don't have to be worried about the civil laws that, that applied only to ancient Israel. You don't have to be worried about the clothing restrictions. You don't have to be worried about circumcision. If you want to do that, make it a health issue. It's not because you think it's going to help your kid get saved. We're, we're under grace. We're not under the law. Right? Although we are called to be morally upright, not morally superior, because that's self-righteousness, but to be morally upright, we are to be holy people, right, with the Spirit's help. This is what we strive for. Ultimately, what, what Paul is saying here is that they came in to try to, by saying we needed to get circumcised and obey the law, they're trying to add the law to to salvation and to faith. They're just trying to bring us back under the law, and we have been freed from that. That's what he's saying. Now, the Judaizers were utterly appalled by the idea that, that Christ came to cancel our debt and to free us from things like circumcision and the dietary restrictions and all those things. They couldn't stand the idea that Christ came to make us less Jewish. They hated that. According to Paul, they entered churches by pretending to be true Christians, to spy out this freedom that they have, and then attack it with a false gospel. Salvation by faith plus works, circumcision, obedience to the Mosaic, all the things that Christ freed us from, they wanted these Gentile believers to practice. And then they said, the only way you can be saved is to do that. Now, you know that there's modern-day Judaizers. There's people out there who say, well, you know, you, you can only be saved if you believe in Jesus and get baptized. I mean, it's still here. We hear that today. In some circles, they say, you're not actually saved unless you speak in tongues because that's a sign of your conversion. So for them, it's faith plus tongues. For some, it's faith plus baptism. For others, it's faith plus obedience to all these regulations and things. I, I literally met a gal at the gun shop when I was working there. I don't work there anymore. Uh, I needed to start a new fund for myself because the money was nice. Uh, but um, she comes in and she's, she's, she claims to be a Christian gal and she's wearing like a head covering all this. And I just thought, well, I'm just going to talk to her. And she was talking about how she's trying to obey all the 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And I was like, but you just said you're a Christian. I am, but those commandments still stand. I said, only the moral ones. What are you talking about? You're covering your head because you think you have to do that? You don't have to do that. That was a civil ordinance, you know, and I just, and, you know, then I was like, I'll sell you a Glock 19. I don't know, whatever. But it just, it was weird, you know. But here's a gal who loves Christ, apparently, and she's trying to, I mean, how do you do that? I, 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 I can, I can barely live my life for Christ as it is. I'm going to add a whole bunch of Old Testament laws to my life? I'm going to go down in flames. It's not required. At the end of verse 4, Paul says they are, he's talking about the Judaizers, they are attempting to bring believers into slavery. 
You know, you need to understand that being under the law of God is a type of slavery. It is, right? Think about that. You have to do what the law says at all times, right? I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to be careful with what I wear. I got to be careful with what I eat. I mean, you got to follow it to the letter. That, to me, is a kind of bondage. And you need to know there is no grace in the law of God, none. And you might think, well, there was grace expressed in the sacrificial system. Well, of course there was. But for the most part, there's no grace in the law. There's no margin for error, and that's what grace is. Grace says you can't do it, so Christ did it for you. Rest in Him. That's, we have margin of error for us. We have grace. But there's no, there's no grace in the law. There's no margin for error. People are required to obey all of God's moral commandments, and when they fail, they are condemned. Have you ever lied? Have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? These are the commandments of God. Have we done these things? Of course we have. Now you're saying, if I'm under the law, then I'm condemned by the laws I've broken. Yes, that's the way it works. There's no mulligans in the Mosaic law. None. No do-overs. One golfer back there is going, amen, mulligan. (laughs) The Judaizers were trying to destroy Gentile believers, the Gentile believers' blood-bought freedom by making them slaves to the Mosaic law. They were trying to get them to do the very thing Jesus came to do and did perfectly. If Jesus did the law, he obeyed the law perfectly and fulfilled it and satisfied God's demands, why are we coming back around trying to do his job? Does that make any sense to you? Does that make sense? Well, I'm going to try to do what Jesus did. How long did that last? 16 minutes. In verse 5, Paul says, when the Judaizers tried to do do this at Antioch and then in Jerusalem, he says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's basically telling the, the Galatians that long before I ever knew you, we went through all of this and we fought hard to keep the gospel in place so that you would get the true gospel, not this false version the Judaizers are preaching to you. Paul Barnabas and Titus and other members of the team that went down to Jerusalem during this instance, they they were not the only ones who took a stand and opposed these false brothers, these Judaizers, right? Listen to what Peter said in front of Paul and the others um, and the other pastoral delegates from Antioch and during in front of the whole council here at the Jerusalem meeting. Listen listen to what Peter says. This is his response to the Judaizers claiming that you got to be circumcised. This is happening with Paul there, by the way. He says, brothers, and I don't even know why he calls. This is a weird thing for me. I I get that there's brothers, true brothers in the Lord in the the gathering. But why do they call the Judaizers brothers often? They called them uh, earlier, uh, somebody called them brothers when he was referring to the party of the members of the circumcision or the members of the Pharisaical party. These are not brothers. Don't call these people brothers. But here he says, brothers, and I think he's just making a point to all the believers there, even though the Judaizers are there. He says, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. Think of Cornelius. Remember when Peter went to Cornelius and preached? That was a Gentile. So that's what he's talking about. He says, God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit. 
just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Uh, He's talking about between Jew and Gentile. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. And he says this, So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe. We believe that we are all saved by the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus, right? Acts 15, 7 through 11, that's from the NLT. This is Peter's response. He's essentially saying, from what I gather, from what I've learned about you and watching you and listening to you Judaizers, and from what Paul and his team are telling me, you are trying to bring Gentiles into slavery under the law that we couldn't even follow ourselves, that Christ came to fulfill for us. He's essentially defending the true gospel and rebuking the Judaizers here. Now listen to what James said, right? Because he's actively involved. At the same council meeting after Paul speaks, James speaks up. He's another apostle, an apostolic authority. He says, Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written... Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago, end quote from James there. And then he says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is said in Acts 15, 14 through 19. That's the NLT. He's saying the same thing as Peter, essentially, although he even quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament that talks about how God was going to save Gentiles all along and never require that they be circumcised. Peter and James essentially stood their ground during the Jerusalem council with Paul and Paul's team there and with the Judaizers there. And what did they do? Peter and James preserved the gospel of grace, and they did it right there in front of the Judaizers, who claim to be supported by Peter and James. I wonder if Peter and James also said, maybe on the side, which is not recorded in Scripture, and you guys have been telling people we sent you? Are you nuts? The Jerusalem Council went further. It produced a letter to the churches in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, the churches that Paul planted years before, and it took that letter and wrote that letter, and it gave it to Paul and said, go to the churches and give them this letter. And the letter was meant to settle the matter once and for all. Circumcision is not required for Gentiles. It was meant to expose the Judaizers. Now, there were some things in there that were that were mentioned in the letter if you go back and read it in acts 15 28 to 29 basically it says this gentile believers are not to be burdened with circumcision but they should avoid the pagan love feasts that were popular in the greco-roman world where the party goers ate meat sacrificed to idols drank animal blood and engaged in sexual immorality it sounds like an indiana jones episode without the sex this is the advice that the, that, the, that the council, the Jerusalem council, gave to Gentiles, but there's no mention of circumcision because it's not required. But if you were a Gentile living in Antioch or those other regions, Cilicia uh, or, or, or Syria or any of those parts, you had come out of a lifestyle of attending those crazy pagan love feasts. And there were probably still some genuine believers who were still being invited to those things and going to them. And all they're saying here is, 
you're not going to do well if you go to those things. They're not saying if you go to those things, you won't be saved. They're saying you're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, but, but if you go to those things, you will, you will not do well. Because how does sin benefit us as believers? It doesn't. It causes destruction in our lives. But Paul wasn't finished explaining his account. We spent some time in Acts. He's not finished explaining his account to the Gentiles here at all or to the Galatians at all. We need to move to his 11th autobiographical statement. Number 11, we were approved by the influential and the pillars of the church. Verses 6 through 10, Galatians 2. Listen to what he says. And from those who seem to be influential, and he says parenthetically, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, that'd be Jews, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me to the Gentiles. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Paul finished describing the gospel he preached to the Jerusalem council, those who were influential, the elders, and those who were the pillars, the apostles, they basically responded to Paul in, in four ways. Now, we know they responded to the Judaizers and nuked them, but they responded to Paul and his team in four ways. And look at what he says. Firstly, they added nothing to me, verse 6. Added nothing to me. What is Paul saying? After I presented the gospel I preached to the Gentiles, to, the, to, the, to those who were in leadership, they added nothing to my gospel. They subtracted nothing from my gospel. They didn't stop me midway through and say, but what about circumcision? What about baptism? What about this? What about that? What about wearing clothes with patches sewn on them? What about eating lobster? What about eating pulled pork? They never said anything to it. They never added anything to the gospel he preaches. Why? Because the apostles and the elders and Paul and his team all preached the true gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing was added. Secondly, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Verse 9a. The elders and the apostles listened to Paul's gospel that he preaches to the Gentiles and they happily welcomed Paul and his companions into the fellowship into the ministry of the church. You're preaching the true gospel. Keep doing what you're doing. Here is the right hand of fellowship. And if you are a member at this church, we started a few years ago during our membership celebration. When we add people to our church, they go through the membership process. What do we do? We extend the right hand of fellowship to them. It's a, it's a symbol of love and acceptance. And that's essentially what's happening here. We preached our gospel. Man, they gave us the right hand of fellowship. They didn't call us Judaizers and tell us to leave. Thirdly, they suggested that Paul, they suggested that me and my companions continue our ministry to the Gentiles while they said they would continue to minister to the circumcised. That would be Jews. Verse 9b. So the first one was verse 9a, now in verse 9b. Hey, you guys are preaching the gospel to Gentiles, keep doing that, and we'll keep ministering to Jews. 
If there had been a problem with Paul's gospel, what would have happened? You are to cease from doing ministry. That did not happen. And then fourthly, this is the fourth thing they, they did when they responded after Paul preached his gospel to them. They asked Paul and his companions to remember the poor. Verse 10. And I think what they're actually doing there is saying, remember us here, because for some reason the Jerusalem church was like the most broke church of all the churches. The churches throughout Judea were very impoverished. That's why they were always taking offerings at the churches that Paul planted and bringing them down there. I think that's what he's saying. Remember us down here because we don't have the same financial means that you have. And what does Paul say? That was the thing that I was very happy to do. He loved to raise support for other churches that were broke. This is, this is a, a, what we're reading here is, is full acceptance of Paul and his gospel and his team and the churches that he's planted. Full acceptance and full rejection of the Judaizers. That's what we're seeing here. The Jerusalem Council, this meeting that we're, we're looking at here that Paul's describing in Galatians and that we've been looking at in Acts 15, it bolstered Paul and his companions. And within a few months... Uh, Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They were commissioned by the church at Antioch, and they embarked on the first missionary journey where they went out and planted the very churches that are being written to here in Galatia. This is how it played out. Now let's move to Paul's 12th and final autobiographical statement, and I have to pause to say that this one is pretty sad. It is. In fact, most commentators left it out of, of this section and taught they, they deal with it by itself. But I, I didn't want to do that. Number 12, Paul says, I rebuked Cephas for being a hypocrite when he visited Antioch. And this is expressed in verses 11 through 14. This is a bummer, man. This, this just reminds me of me. It's easier for me to be a hypocrite than a man of God. Amen? Or are you guys all perfect? Thank you, because I'm starting to feel really bad and isolated. At least I'm not wearing a weed shirt like Bruce. Bad Bruce. Yeah, I am being a hypocrite because I was wearing it last week. It's palm trees. It's not weed. Except his looks a little bit more like hemp. I rebuked Cephas. Who is Cephas? Cephas is Peter. That's another name for Peter, right? I rebuked Peter for being a hypocrite when he visited Antioch. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, so you get the idea that Peter now leaves Jerusalem where he's headquartered and he goes up to visit Paul in his ministry and not to, not to observe him like big brother, but just to go see the glorious work that God is doing. When he came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Listen to this. This is crushing. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that is an amazing statement. He says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And by the way, it is believed that the very next section that Lord willing will look at next week was also part of Paul's rebuke, the next section in Galatians. 
So because the Judaizers had told believers in the Galatian churches that Paul was not a true apostle, the incident mentioned here in verses 11 through 14 is especially significant. Paul was not only equal to the other apostles, but had on this occasion even reprimanded Cephas or Peter, the one who was recognizably the leading apostle among the twelve. You're saying that I'm not at the same level as the apostles. I'm telling you that I am an apostle destroyer when they abandon the gospel. That's what he's saying. Now this happened during Peter's visit to Antioch sometime after the Jerusalem council and probably right before Paul left on his first missionary journey. That's what I think. When Peter arrived, he, he was fellowshipping with these Gentile believers, right? With these uncircumcised brothers in Christ. He was fellowshipping with them just as he had fellowshiped with Jewish believers back home in Jerusalem. There was nothing here that held him back. There was a, a camaraderie and a brother-likeness a, a brother that was just beautiful. It, these were just Christian brothers hanging out and loving each other and, and eating together and sharing meals and doing all the things that us Christians love to do. Boy, do I love the potluck. Who doesn't? In other words, Peter was totally unconcerned, didn't even cross his mind the fact that these brothers that he was hanging out with were Gentiles and Greeks and, and not circumcised. He never thought about that. It says he was eating with them, which is one of the most intimate things you could do in antiquity. Sharing a meal was an act of love and acceptance. Think of Jesus and his disciples during the Last Supper, right? John chapters 13 and 14. Think of that intimate setting when you had somebody... It's not like today, let's go grab a sandwich. Back then, when you had a meal with somebody, it was an intimate thing. You didn't just do that with anybody. You did it with your closest friends, your closest relatives, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have the potluck with falafel and matzo ball soup. But, here's the big but... But then members of the circumcision party showed up. Who were they? The same people that belonged to the party of the Pharisees, the Judaizers. These are just different titles for the same guys. And, and I take it that since they're called three different things, there was a lot of them. Then members of the circumcision party showed up. Those are the, the guys who claim that you just, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to follow the Mosaic law. It's them who preach that false gospel. They're the Judaizers. They show up. They even claim to be sent by James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, which is an outright lie. In Acts 15, verse 24, where, where the, the letter was written to the Gentiles in, in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, it says on there, you have been bothered by some men who said they came from us. They did not come from us, exclamation point. We never sent those Judaizers to you. They're on their own, working in our name. And when Peter saw these men enter into this fellowship, this beautiful, lovely, spiritual inviting and accepting, inclusive fellowship. When he saw these men try to enter in, what happens? He becomes fearful and he draws back from the uncircumcised. He steps away from the Gentiles and starts associating with the Jewish quote-unquote Christians. He doesn't want to be seen with these Gentiles. This is an apostle. 
This is the number one apostle doing this. You understand? This is Peter. He broke fellowship with the brothers that were there and started hanging out with another group, the worthless Judaizers. They are worthless. And there were other Messianic Jews, that's, that's Jews who were converted to Christ. There were others who, who followed along. They saw Peter and they said, oh, we better follow. Oh, you're right. We better get away from these Gentiles because we don't want to catch slack from, from the circumcision party. So they, they followed along and they leave the Gentiles. And all of a sudden the Gentiles are there going, hey, what happened to all the Jewish Christians? They probably weren't even thinking they were Jewish Christians. What happened to Peter? What happened to Fred? Verse 13, Paul tells the Galatians that, that there's a mass exodus happening here away from the Gentiles over toward the Judaizers. And it got to the point that even Barnabas was led astray. One of, to me, one of the greatest men in the Bible. Paul's companion for, for years. The, the guy that, that sold his ranchette to provide for poor Christians, Acts 2, Acts 3. Barnabas was an amazing man. If it hadn't been for Barnabas, Paul probably would not have been initially accepted by the apostles because he went in and said, hey, this guy's not killing Christians anymore. He's making Christians through the gospel, really through the spirit. But this is Barnabas, this is, this is Peter. What are you guys doing? Why? And, and Paul is, he's there and he's watching and he can't believe his eyes. He, he's doing this. What? Wait. He can't believe what he's seeing. He's watching Peter. He's watching Barnabas. He's watching pretty much all of the Messianic Jews abandon the uncircumcised non-Jewish brothers. And he really doesn't know why until he starts asking questions, but I think he realizes because he wrote here it's out of fear. You know, Scripture records three major blunders from Peter, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Maybe there's more. I'm thinking of the time he rebuked Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to be betrayed and lay down my life. And, 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 and Peter jumps in there with a cape and a big S, really a, a, a big S on his shirt, not for Superman, but for stupid man. And he jumps in and says, you're not going to go there and do that. And then what, is, what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You know not the will of God. You are trying to fulfill the will of man. Peter tries to intervene and stop Jesus from going to the cross, which cancels out our salvation if he doesn't die on that cross. Matthew 16, 23. That's one time. That was a huge blunder. How about the time that he denied that he knew Jesus three times? On the night of Jesus' arrest, he's by a campfire, and a little girl comes over and says, weren't you with those guys? I have no idea what you're speaking of. He denies the Lord three times. He commits tyranny against his Lord and Master. Luke 11, 54 to 62. That's two. That's two strikes, Peter. And then you have one here in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, where he broke fellowship with the Gentiles and led others to follow his terrible, pathetic example. Three major blunders. When Paul 
saw that the conduct of his Jewish brothers was out of step with the gospel, he goes up to Peter and he opposes Peter to his face and he rebukes him. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And as I said, the rest of that section in Galatians might be part of this rebuke. Uh, what he's basically saying is this. When the Judaizers were not here with us, Peter, you acted like you were not under the Mosaic law. You acted like you were a free man in Christ, eating what you desired, glorifying God in, in the things that, that were restricted before. And, you know, you, you, you were living like a Gentile and acting like a Gentile, not under the law. In fact, it says he ate with them, right? So he was eating the same foods, right? They couldn't have pork. And so Peter's like a Gentile. He's eating, he's eating carnitas with tortillas, really flatbread. He's, he's just doing what the Gentiles do. He's enjoying the fellowship. He's just like them. He's like everyone. Everyone there is like one another. Not robots, but just enjoying the freedom that they have. That's what he's doing. And then Paul says, but when the Judaizers entered, you drew back and acted like a pious Jew under the Mosaic law. All of a sudden, you became the Ten Commandment guy. Well, actually, the Ten Commandments are good. You became the Six Hundred Commandment guy. In other words, you got super religious. And you stepped away from your brothers in the Lord, probably some sisters in the Lord. You walked away from all of them. You dropped your pulled pork sandwich, acted like you weren't eating it, tried to wipe off the sweet, you know, baby Ray, whatever barbecue sauce off your face. It was in your nose and in your beard. Is it called Sweet Baby Ray? Thank God, because I always get that wrong. I, he's just blown away, and he rebukes him and says, Man, just a moment ago, you were like everyone else here, and then all of a sudden you started acting like this pious Jew under the law because you were afraid of them. How dare you? And what was Peter actually doing here? Why was this so bad? Breaking fellowship's bad, but... Really what he was doing is he was affirming the Judaizers, wasn't he? I mean, if you walk away from one group and go to another group and hang out with them, you're affirming them. This is the head apostle. He's affirming them. He's validating their false gospel. Peter's action sent a, a clear message to those present. The Judaizers are correct. Gentile converts are not part of the, are not part of the fold. They should not be given the right hand of fellowship unless they get circumcised. This is what he's communicating through his withdrawal. Peter's insane hypocrisy earned him a world-class public rebuke from the Apostle Paul, and rightly so. Much was at stake here. Peter's poor conduct contradicted the Jerusalem letter that was meant to settle the issue. Circumcision is not required. It bolstered the enemies of the church, the enemies of the gospel, the Judaizers, and his behavior was absolutely not in step with the truth of the gospel. By the way, the gospel makes no distinctions between Jews or Gentiles, no distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised. This is why Paul talks about this in chapter 3, verse 28 of Galatians. There's no male or female in the church per se. I, I, we're not blurring the lines of gender here. We're just saying that God, doesn't, God sees us as his people in the entirety we are all his people and he doesn't make these sort of distinctions well there's there's a circumcised believer and there's an uncircumcised that's what men do god does not see us that way 
He doesn't even break us down into male and female or barbarian or Scythian or any of that. Talks about this in Scripture. Paul gave these autobiographical statements to help the Galatians understand that he is a legitimate apostle and that the gospel he preaches is and always has been the only legitimate gospel. Right? It's not about getting circumcised. It's not about doing. It's not about working hard to get into heaven. It's not, it's not about any of that. It's, it's always been about grace. It's always been about faith. And it's always been about Christ. That's the gospel. Doesn't have anything to do with getting snipped. Doesn't have anything to do with getting dunked. Doesn't have anything to do with doing a real good job obeying the laws. Has nothing to do with it. It's all about grace. It's all about faith. It's all about Christ. That way no man can boast. And he walks them through these statements to help them understand, I am, a I am a legitimate apostle. In fact, I rebuked the head apostle. Put that in your pipe. He walked them through the moments where he stood up to the Judaizers and to Peter and to Barnabas and to other Jewish brothers when their message and conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. These Judaizers, Galatians, listen to me, Galatians. These Judaizers have come and said circumcision is part of this deal. Listen to what I am telling you. Those who said it was, I rebuked. Those who acted like that was part of it, I rebuked. And one time it was a, an apostle. You know what Paul expects? He expects the Galatians to follow his example here and to stand up to the Judaizers who were in this church wreaking havoc. He wants... He wants them to expel these false brothers before they gain a real foothold in these churches and cause serious spiritual harm. That's the whole point of these autobiographical statements, really. In closing, I'd like to just focus on verse 14 for a very brief moment. Just that verse that's just so penetrating and devastating. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Man. This verse had just been haunting me all week. And, and, I, and I thought about it like this, because this is exactly what's playing out here in the text. This is what happened in the narrative. How we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ will determine whether we are in or out of step with the truth of the gospel. Right? Paul noticed that they left the actual brothers and sisters in Christ out of fear and went over and aligned themselves with this group. They mistreated this group and gave favor to this group. This group wasn't even part of the church. But in the departure here to go to here, they were mistreating these believers. And Paul says, you are not in step with the truth of the gospel when you do that. That says to me that when I mistreat Steve, when I don't accept him, when I'm not kind to him, when I'm, not, when, I'm not, when I'm not fair to Ivan, I am not in step with the truth of the gospel. Think about that. What is it that causes, what caused these men to not be in step with the truth of the gospel? It was fear. Fear can lead us to step away from brothers and sisters and to put distance between us and them because we fear something. And there's another thing that destroys fellowship, and that's self-righteousness. 
a sense of superiority over others. And when we see the behavior of one, we say, I can't have anything to do with that. I need to separate myself from that. What are we doing now? Are we actually being helpful and loving toward those brothers and sisters that may need our help? No, we are acting out of step with the truth of the gospel. When we make judgments about our brothers and sisters, out of step with the truth of the gospel. And this is something that we do all the time, isn't it? All the time. Who would have ever thought that just by the way you treat someone would determine whether you're in or out of step with the truth? And that's, to me, that's not even the biggest lesson of this text. It's Paul's defense of the gospel. But to me, that's a defense of the gospel right there because I don't think I represent the gospel well at times when I don't treat you right. We need to test ourselves. If we, if we are accepting and inclusive with our brothers and sisters, we are in step. If we are judgmental and withdrawn, we are out of step. We've got to test ourselves to make sure that we are not guided by those two things, fear and self-righteousness, because nothing will destroy fellowship quicker than those things. And I think usually it's not fear, it's self-righteousness. We see somebody we know and we're close to do something, and immediately we're inspired to be critical and to draw back and to put distance. And that is... That is Man, that, that's so similar to what's playing out here. Now, this was over circumcision, you know. There's other issues that we judge and say, hey, I mean, who appointed us as the police, the spiritual police here? Who did that? There's no spiritual law enforcement in this church. And, and somehow, some of us have taken up that role. That we're just going to watch people's lives carefully. And then we're going to make those judgments and those critical statements. We're not in step with the gospel when we do this. How dare we? If we see something happening with a brother and sister, Matthew 18 says we're to go directly to them and to call their attention to it in love. That's the right way to handle it. That is in step with the gospel. Remember that, beloved. Modern-day Judaizers, however, those who preach a false gospel of salvation by faith plus works, they're not to be treated like brothers and sisters. They're not to be welcomed into the fellowship. They're not to be hated. They're not to be despised. You can be a friend with them, but you're on mission with them to give them the true gospel. You just need to remember they are false brothers. They are false sisters. There's no fellowship. You cannot have fellowship with with darkness like that. And, and what ought to be highly offensive to you as a believer is a false gospel. That should be one of the most offensive things in the world to you, that somebody would go around and twist Christ. And you need to, we need to stand up like Paul did, right? They, they, they had no little dissension with these guys who were spreading this false gospel. They stood right up to them. This whole letter, Galatians, that was written is a defense for the true gospel and a, a colossal rebuke against the false gospel of the Judaizers. We ought to be willing to defend the gospel. It is our duty. It is our privilege. 
But lastly, one thing we need to remember, we need to remember to do it in love. Why is that? Because loveless speech is just noise. It's a clanging cymbal, a noisy gong. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Amen?